I want to begin our kind of foray into the Holy Spirit with an excerpt uh, of a day in the life of a prominent evangelical Bible teaching pastor who writes, it was a vulnerable time in my life. I was in a distant city, tired and dry from several long years of ministry. My rented red compact idled at a lazy stoplight, and I glanced at scribbled directions lying next to my briefcase on the front of the seat. I only had two blocks to go. Should I really be doing this? I wondered nervously, thinking for a moment of my friends back home who wouldn't approve of what I was about to do or go. Yet the hunger within me drove me to press on. The light turned green. I made two left turns into the parking lot and stopped in front of my destination. I'd never been in a place like this before. I'd heard of them, of course, but usually from distant acquaintances, not the sort of folks I usually hang out with. I felt embarrassed as an evangelical pastor to even be here. What if someone saw me? Even worse, what if, well, what if I was influenced by what was lurking within? I walked to the glass doors at the front of the building with the studied casualness of a man who wants to look like he's done this a hundred times, but really has never done it. My heart, my heart pounded in my chest as I turned the handle and stepped into the glare of fluorescent lighting shimmering off the jackets of thousands of books. Here I was in a charismatic bookstore. <laughs> I wandered from row to row, timidly at first, then with more boldness, my eyes drinking in this strange new forbidden world. There were books on healings and exorcism, books on prophecy and speaking in tongues, books on miracles and revival, all packaged with bright foil-embossed covers that hinted dangerously of power and excitement. I slipped a dozen paperbacks from the shelves, drummed my fingers nervously as the clerk put them on my visa card, and escaped into the night. My foray into the land of charismatics had come off undetected, at least for now. And this is only one of thousands of stories like this of evangelicals, right? Baptists and Methodists, and maybe the greatest miracle of all, Presbyterians who have crossed into the other side, the forbidden world of being filled with the Spirit. And I use that term loosely because that term means a lot to a lot of people, and we'll break it down. Calvary Chapel actually became a landing spot for a lot of pastors like this. I was out in Southern California at our senior pastors conference where most of the prominent Calvary guys would teach a different session. And I was a little strange uh, for the one o'clock session where a gentleman walked up and uh, announced, you know, one of those typical announcements, here's the license plate number, uh, the keys are in your car, it's locked, and your car's running. And of course, no one wants to get up because you look like the village idiot. So, uh, and then the guy said, open your Bible to a chapter. And I thought, wait a second, this guy's an announcer. And not only that, he looks like an announcer guy, right? Because most Calvary guys are big and tattooed and long hair and this guy looked like, like a pastor, actually, uh, or an accountant or something like that. And uh, he began to tell his story, and it was marvelous. This guy went to seminary, and he was a pastor for 25 years in the Methodist church. And then he encountered the Spirit of God, and he spoke in tongues, and he began to move in the gifts. And he tried to bring it into his Methodist church, and they wouldn't let him, and they released him. They set him go. And Chuck Smith used to pick guys up like this, and now he's got a church of thousands in Vancouver, Washington. But I love the line he would say. He would use this line over and over again every time he told a crazy story. He said, what do I know? I'm a Methodist. And it was so funny coming from this guy who the last thing you would ever think had a testimony like this. Now, there are also thousands of stories like my own of someone who got saved and then got immersed in what I would call charismania. And there is a difference. There's a difference between charismania and charismatic. The charismatic movement has been wonderful. It's been a breath of fresh air for the church. But the church I was born into or born again into was charismania. We had it all going on. Healing revival, slain in the spirit, prophecy a minute, speaking in tongues, and holy laughter. There was nothing new under the sun. It was all going on back in that day. I'll never forget, my wife was eight months pregnant, and we had a guy at our church leading a laughing revival, and you're thinking, what in the world is holy laughter? Well, uh, they would take all these verses in scripture about joy 
And on the day of Pentecost, people thinking that uh, the people in the upper room that were filled with the Spirit were drunk. And so, no, no lie, this man would preach. He wouldn't tell any jokes. People would just start laughing, uncontrollable. And then he would give an altar call, and people would come up, and they were getting slain in the Spirit. Now, if you don't know anything about slain in the Spirit, it's where somebody prays for you, and they put their hands on your forehead, and you fall backwards. There's actually a serving position in the church called a catcher. Uh, you just catch people that fall backwards. That's actually a position you can serve in. Well, this guy, people were falling forward. And so my wife's in front of me, and he prays for her, and she falls forward eight months pregnant. And I'll never forget, I was next in line. I'm like, hey, my wife's pregnant. And he's like, don't worry. This is under the spirit. Nothing can go wrong. This is the kind of stuff that happens at those churches. And I remember when the service ended, I was on the usher team. We literally locked that church up with a guy who supposedly was bombed out of his mind, drunk in the spirit, leaning up against the beam, and we just like closed the church and left him there. So crazy stuff going on in the church that I was involved in. Now here's what happened. Three years in, I, I had this hunger. Couldn't explain it. There's got to be something more. My church was teaching about healing and prosperity almost every week. That God wants to prosper you if you had enough faith. And I was 21. I wasn't sick. And God took away my desire for money. So I had this dryness in, inside of me. And there was others like me. And we were praying. And we found the beauty of the evangelical side of the church. The beauty of Bible exposition and going through the scriptures. Order. <laughs> you know that verse in Corinthians where Paul said, I want all things done decently in order? The charismatics take half of that verse. They want all things done. And then the evangelical side of the church says, no, decency and order is the name of the game. And so we found the beauty of scholarship and academia. I just watched a documentary on Billy Graham. He died at 100 years old. An evangelist for 60, 70 years. And you look at all that transpired in our country, and many of those seeds were sown by Billy Graham. What a legacy. Now, not only do we adopt the legacy of this new evangelical world, you know, some people throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we kept the beauty of the charismatics. Emphasis on deep intercessory prayer, praise and worship, faith, believing God. I'll, I'll never regret my time in the charismatic movement where we believe God for great things. God, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What happened on Azusa Street in the early 1900s that made its way all the way through the Catholic Church, the spirit falling on the Catholic Church in the 60s and 70s in basements was real, powerful, and filled many churches like ours. And then we found Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel was a place where the middle ground of the word and the spirit could agree, find a common home. Uh, Calvary Chapel, in the early years, we had this mantra that Baptists thought we were Pentecostal and Pentecostals thought we were Baptists. The problem with most of the church is we move to one extreme or another. Jack Deere, in his book, Surprised by the Voice of God, said it better than I've ever heard. He said, Some, somewhere along the way, the church has encouraged a silent divorce between the word and the spirit. Divorces are painful, both for the children and the parents. One parent usually gets custody of the children, and the other only gets to visit occasionally. It breaks the heart of the parents, and the children are usually worse off because of the arrangement. Many in the church today are content to live with only one parent. They live with the word, and the spirit only has limited visiting rights. He just gets to see and touch the kids once in a while. Some of his kids don't even recognize him anymore. Some are afraid of him. Others in the church live with the Spirit and only, and the Word gets sporadic visits. The Spirit doesn't want to raise the kids without the Word. He can see how unruly they are becoming, but he won't force them to do what they must, and they must choose. So the church has become a divided family growing up with separate parents. One set of kids is proud of their education, the other set proud of their freedom. Both think they're better than the other. The parents are brokenhearted. Because unlike most divorces, they didn't choose this divorce. Their kids did. And the word and the spirit have had to both honor and endure that choice. 
As Pastor John said earlier, that's where the church lives. We're divided. And I understand we can be divided on things, right? I can understand we can divide, divide it on some doctrines and should we meet in churches or houses or the color of carpet or how we do church. I get all that church government. How could we ever be divided on the supreme power and mover of the church? How could we ever get divided on the Holy Spirit? So for the next three weeks, we're going to look at the person and the power of the Spirit. And so this isn't just another series. I'm going to ask three things of you. We're going to ask you to engage in this series. We're going to ask you to do some things. Well, one of the things I'm going to ask you for is a spirit of humility. You think we can all do that? Think we can, first service said clap. Think we can do all that? Yeah. See, I know some of you have your backup, right? You're loaded with your Bible verses. You're dug into your position. I understand that. The one thing I do understand is Jesus said it would take a childlike experience to experience all that God has. You know, it's Father's Day, right? And Jesus said good fathers give good gifts. James said every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. God's not going to give you a scorpion. He's not going to, you know, he's not going to give you what you don't want. How much more, Jesus said, will he give you the Holy Spirit to them that ask? But I think it takes a childlikeness. It takes a humility. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. When I was in the extreme charismatic movement, we had our own bookstores like the gentleman visited. And I remember if somebody went to a bookstore like ours, or there were a lot of bookstores back in that time, Christian bookstores, if you went in those bookstores with great authors and great scholarship, you know what we were told? Don't really go to those bookstores. Those people haven't arrived at the level of faith we have. It's called Gnosticism. That's not good for the church. God has many gifts for the church. Second thing I'm going to ask is that this not be an intellectual exercise. Again, that's one of our problems. We have too much head knowledge. It's like prayer. We don't need more books on prayer. We need to pray, right? We don't need more books on love. We need to love one another. This is like breathing. We, we need the Holy Spirit. We don't need to learn more about him. Now, we are going to learn some because in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul writes, he says to a church that was way out of whack, way out of balance, brethren, I want you not to be ignorant in concerning the charismata, the gifts, the pneuma, the working of the Spirit. So there has to be knowledge, and we'll approach it as we get there. And finally, I think we all need to be willing participants. I think we all need to pray a prayer like Andrew Murray prayed, and gosh, I've worn his book out. Father, let the Holy Ghost have full dominion over me, in my home, in my temper, in every word of my tongue, in every thought of my heart, in every feeling and every desire, and in every relationship with my fellow man, may the Spirit have full possession of me. I think if we do those three things, I think if we're open and set aside maybe our entrenched positions, there can be great learning and growing. This could be a liftoff for many of us into a world that has never been experienced before. Next week when I talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'll show you a place in Acts where when the disciples get there, they said, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And listen to the answer. We have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So many of God's people have really never lived and moved in the power of the Holy Spirit, and I think this series can change that. The one thing we can all agree on is the Holy Spirit is the most misunderstood part of the Godhead, or what Christians would call a trinity. Now think this through, it's kind of logical, right? Everybody understands the Father, right? Sistine Chapel, we have a God with a long beard reaching out to man. God has a throne, he's in heaven, he's the God of the Old Testament, it's Father's Day, we understand father figures. Uh, we don't need a lot of explanation that God is our Father. Now, Jesus kind of took it to a, another level, right? When, when asked how to pray, he said, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven. Now, that wasn't as groundbreaking as you think. Hebrews says that God who spoke to the prophets, you know, in the Old Testament, spoke to the fathers to the prophets, has in these last days spoken his son. In other words, Jesus has shed light on things of old. The idea that God was a father was steeped in the Old Testament. 
Uh, God said in Isaiah, I have had children and they rebelled against me. He was the father of Israel. Psalm 68 says, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Listen, a father of the fatherless and a defender of widows. Jesus just took it to another level and said, you know, God is our dad, and the scripture says we cry through the spirit, Abba, Father. So that's easy. Jesus, a little more complicated, right? Christmas, the incarnation. He took on human flesh, but that's God in the flesh. So we might not understand all that, but we believe it. John 1, some of the most profound words ever written. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Seven I am statements in John, I'm the bread of life, I'm the door of the sheep, right? Taking us back to the burning bush where Moses said, what do I tell the people your name is? And God says, tell them I am that I am. So I don't think we struggle with Jesus being God, but it's the Holy Spirit we get confused at. We get confused because there's a couple illustrations Jesus gave us that almost makes him out like a power or a force. One, he told Nicodemus in John 3, that the spirit was like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going, but you could feel it, right? The rustling of the leaves or a gale force wind or maybe a hurricane. And then Jesus told the disciples, wait in Jerusalem and you will be endued with what? Power, right? You see televangelists talk about power. And when you receive this power, uh, you'll be my witnesses. Now the problem with this force or this power is we see a lot of crazy things, right? Mainly on TV, or, or if you've been in these churches, uh, where there's a lot of strange things going on. Now, let me say this. Uh, the Holy Spirit will make us do strange things to the world. I fully believe that. Like when David danced nude, that was strange, okay? Uh, the day of Pentecost, where they spoke in other languages, the people said, these guys are drunk. That was strange. So God's going to make us do some things, I like to use the word, that are peculiar and undignified, but nowhere near some of the things we see today, which, by the way, is always chalked up as the Holy Spirit. He gets all the blame, right? Um, I was preaching somewhere one time where 10 minutes before we went on, I was sitting with the pastor, had a wonderful conversation, talked about life and kids and God. It was beautiful. When he got in the pulpit to announce that I was there, he went into a 10-minute tirade and turned into someone I had never experienced before. Screaming and yelling and all that. And if you asked, what was that? The Holy Spirit. Remember the Italian job, the movie? There's a guy in the baggage carousel in an airport, and he's waiting for something to go down. He's on the phone. And everybody's around the baggage carousel, and he, he gets word that whatever they're doing has come through. And he starts jumping and screaming and leaping, and finally he looks around, and everybody at the baggage carousel is looking at him. He goes, uh, the Holy Spirit, right? So our, our culture's picked up on this. That if the Holy Spirit's involved, there's some element of weirdness. The greatest teaching we have on the Holy Spirit comes from Jesus. Thank the Lord. John 14 to 16, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit more than anywhere else in Scripture. He tells us that the Holy Spirit is not a wind, not a force. He uses personal pronouns 16 times. But before we get there, I ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 7. It's one of my favorite verses. It's the most quotable. Everybody should know it. In chapter 7, Verse 37, it says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now catch this. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, that's the Old Testament, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now here's what you may not have seen, the next verse. But this he spoke, John said, concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus wasn't glorified. I will bet every amount of money I have that when Jesus stood up on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was commemorating God's presence in the Old Testament among his people, 
and said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me. Whoever believes in me, out of his belly will be rivers of living water. I don't think John had a clue what Jesus was talking about. And neither did the other disciples. But he's writing as a 90-year-old man. He's writing as someone who's written the book of Revelation. He's been a pastor at Ephesus. He's lived in the reality of the Holy Spirit. And he writes now, I know what this is. I know the life in God of a Holy Spirit that takes up residence in us. And, and it's just like Jesus said, rivers of living water. It says here out of your heart, your heart is you know, where you think and feel. Uh, Old King James, your belly, the, the core of who you are would be a never-ending source. This was the life Jesus promised. Now the problem is, problem is this is the life Jesus promised, then there's the life that is, right? There's this abundant life, and there's this life in the Spirit, and there's rivers of water, and I get angry with my kids, and mad at my wife, and I'm fearful about finances, and I spend too much time at work, and you know the drill. And you think, God, where is the life in the Spirit that was promised? I love what Jesus said here, rivers of living water. Kind of takes us back to Eden. We don't know much about the Garden of Eden. We know that there was a tree of life. We know there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know there were animals there because Adam named them. We know there was abundance and variety. The one thing we do know is there were five rivers that flowed out of Eden. This was very important to Israel because they had no rivers. They had the River Jordan. If you come to Israel, you'll be highly disappointed. It looks like a little creek ro rolling by. Nothing like the Nile in Egypt or the Tigris and Euphrates in Babylon or maybe the great Mississippi that we have. And what they had in Israel were these wadis. You'll see them a lot down near the Dead Sea. These dry gulch ponds that fill up in the early and the latter rains. That's why the psalmist said, as the deer panteth after the waters, my soul longeth after thee. This isn't your deer in a backyard looking for a creek. These are deer looking for wadis that are filled, and if wadis aren't filled, they die. And there's a river that flows from Genesis through Psalm 1, where the righteous are like trees planted by living water, all the way to what we studied last week, the book of Revelation, chapter 22, where we see the throne of God, the new Jerusalem, and a sea clear as crystal flowing from God's throne. And what Jesus was saying here is that there would be a flow of God's spirit in every age. And our job isn't to work harder and be more religious or fake it till we make it, but our job was to get into the flow of all that God is doing. This is what Jesus said. This is the life that's possible. If we would ever get into the flow of what the Holy Spirit longs to do. And guess what? The book of Acts. You know, we're a church that can read of the flow of the early church. And our story is being written now. God's breathing on us. And our goal in this series is to get in the flow of the Spirit, whether it's for our homes or our job or the life of this church. Now, John 14. Just a few pages over. Jesus gives the disciples on the night before he his betrayal. He said, I say to you, whoever believes in me, the works that I do, you will do also, and greater works you will do because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask my Father's name, I will give it, that my Father may be glorified. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you, get this, forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you. And here's the promise, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, but I will come to you. Now, the disciples are destroyed. Jesus said, I'm leaving. By the way, if someone's leaving, you're supposed to comfort them. He's comforting them instead. And he said, look, guys, if I leave, I'll send another helper, another comforter. 
Now, when you walked in today, if I said, okay, who is the Holy Spirit? Most of you would have said he's the helper. People a little more advanced would have said he's the paraclete, the one that comes alongside. But can I tell you he's another helper? Uh, guess who else helps us? The Father. David said, the Lord is my helper, I shall not want. Uh, guess who was the helper of the disciples? Jesus was. I'll give you another help, another comforter. Which, by the way, tells me we need comfort and we need help, don't we? I mean, we really do. People say, yo, you're a Christian, that's a crutch. And I'm like, you better believe it is. You better, in this world, you better have a crutch. So Jesus is my crutch. There's alcohol, there's pornography, there's money, there's lifestyle. There, there's a lot of crutches out there. I'll take Jesus. He's another helper. I'm going to send you another helper. Now, two chapters later, chapter 16, we see the work of the Spirit. Nevertheless, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it's my advantage if I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. When he comes, this is what he'll do, he'll convict the world of sin. No one comes to the Father except the work of the Spirit. He'll convict the world of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. However, when the Spirit of the truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will glorify me. But one person said, the Holy Spirit leaves no tracks in the sand. See, his whole job is to glorify the Father and Son. That's his role in the Trinity. He doesn't speak of himself. That's why we think he's a force. 16 times in John 14 to 16, circle all the personal pronouns. He, 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 he. Holy Spirit's a person. A person has intelligence. A person has personality. A person has thoughts and feelings. The Holy Spirit speaks. Remember in Acts chapter 13 when the leaders got together at Antioch? It's the first place they were called Christians. All the leaders got together and it tells us the Holy Spirit said, not the Father, not Jesus, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to do. So the Holy Spirit is a person and then lastly, the Holy Spirit is God. And this is where almost everybody but Christians depart. Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, Unitarians, Jews, everybody departs here. One God, three persons, all fully God. Uh, a clear indication of this, uh, we don't have time to be exhaustive about this, but in the early church they had all things in common, right? They were all pooling their resources. So there was this married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, in Acts chapter 5, who sold a part of land and they were going to give it to the apostles. Now, they kind of came up with this idea, and look, don't look down on them because we've all thought this. They said, hey, we could sell this land and we can fund the early church. But maybe we'll sell the land and keep an itsy-bitsy piece for ourselves, but we'll tell everybody we gave it all away. And Peter comes along and he said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart Watch this, to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the land. While it was yours, you could have done whatever you wanted with it. Why have you conceived this in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So we see the Holy Spirit is God. 1 Corinthians 2.10, uh, when we talk about heaven, we say, eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, hasn't entered in the mind of man, the things that God has prepared for him. But it has been revealed by his Spirit, yea, the Spirit searches the deep things of God. So the Holy Spirit is God, Jesus is God, the Father is God, yet they are one. Now, liberal scholars come along and say, wait a second, that's an invention of Christianity. Nowhere in the 39 books of the Old Testament can you find that. Sadly, where we find it is on the first page in Genesis 1. And you might hang me as a heretic, but do your own study. In the beginning, gods created the heavens and the earth. The Elohim used there is the plurality of God, but one in essence. But let's bypass that, because I don't want to get hanged. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form. It was void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, let there be light, right? Now, most of us are familiar with God, ex nihilo, that's Latin, creates the world out of nothing, right? No pallet. He just said, let there be light. We know from Colossians 1 that Jesus is the creator because it says there's nothing that was created that was created without him. And now we see the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, I like this word better, brooding over the waters. What's going on here? The Father is speaking. Jesus is the creator. But we have this strange picture of the earth without form. It's void. Now, some people say, well, there's a gap theory. There was a world, and God flooded it and recreated the world. Uh, I think they have the right title, gap theory. It has tons of gaps, okay? All they're trying to do is kind of take modern science and help God along. It doesn't work. But I look at the work of the Holy Spirit here, and I think I understand something. That God speaks a world into existence. Jesus, again, the creator. Follow me. And there's this Holy Spirit brooding over God's creation. It's almost like the Holy Spirit is taking what is vast and formless and he's beginning to fill it in. I love this idea. Because if you think of his work today, uh, the greatest part of human despair is loneliness and a void most people feel. There's an existential reality to who we are. And a lot of people in our world are empty. That's why Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come to me. Jesus didn't say, okay, in this room there's about 10 people who thirst. Come unto me. Every man thirsts. And Jesus was saying it to people who were following Jehovah. There was a temple there. They were celebrating a, a feast that God said was my feast. They were doing all the right things. But guess what? It was all form and had no power. These people were going through all the rituals. They were tithing of cumin and all their spices. They were... They were giving of themselves. And Jesus said, there is a reality beyond all this. And it's me. That I'm the, I'm the wine giver. I'm the one who can turn water into wine. I can bring joy back to man's relationship to God. Jesus said, I haven't come to patch up Judaism. I haven't come to fill the gaps. He came to bring a new covenant where the Spirit would indwell us. And we see the Holy Spirit here brooding filling the gaps. People that are empty and void today, the Holy Spirit drawing them. The Holy Spirit becomes a preserver of all that God creates. He becomes a protector. He's the orderer of creation. That's why Paul said, let all things be done decently and out of order. When you're at a church and somebody's prophesying over here, speaking in tongues over here, jumping in the aisle here, and someone's preaching, that can't be God. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't interrupt himself. There's always got to be some form of order. Now, in verse 26, it gets real clear. Let us make man in our image. That's more than one. Let us make man in our image. You might be saying, well, who's God talking to? You know what the, the rabbis say? He's talking to the angels. The last time I checked, the angels aren't made in the image and likeness of God. We are. And we're going to judge angels. Uh, in chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, it says in verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put his hand to the tree of life and partake and live forever, God drove him out of the garden. Psalm 2, uh, many would say, is a conversation between the Trinity. You could look it up. Even the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. In a world of polytheism, this was the first monotheistic statement ever made, one God. But even there in the great Shema, if you break the wording down in the Hebrew, the word one is, is one like a cluster, one in essence, like a cluster of grapes. There's many grapes, but it's one. 
Uh, probably my favorite is Isaiah 9, 6 that we talk about at Christmas. For unto us is born a Savior, right? A virgin will conceive. Bring forth a son. What are we going to call him? Wonderful Counselor. How about the Mighty God? The Everlasting Father? The Prince of Peace? Now, I think we all get this, right? If you're having trouble understanding, join the club. Your mind can't comprehend this. In fact, your mind can't comprehend most things about God that have been revealed to us. We look through a glass dimly. We've been given just enough revelation. If we could explain it all, this would have been written by man because we can't explain it all. It came out of, our, came out of time. It's from God. This is what we would call a mystery. Not like an Agatha Christie or a Sherlock Holmes where we got to figure it out. That's the problem today. There's a young generation that's told they got to figure all this out right now. No. The Trinity was figured out 2,000 years ago. Now you can study it, but we stand on the shoulders of great men and women. The mystery is something that was concealed now revealed. Kind of like your password. Or in my case, I have like 15 passwords. Every time I'm on the internet trying to do something, I get as far as the password and then I'm doomed. But on your iPhone, I can't get in because your password is a mystery to me, not to you. Let me give you some other mysteries. <laughs> the incarnation. God becoming flesh? That's a mystery. Now Paul said, great is the mystery of godliness. He took on human flesh. If you can tell me how God became human, I'll pay for your dinner. All right? It's a mystery. The rapture's a mystery. Paul said, I tell you a mystery. Um, the dead are going to rise. We who are alive remain. We'll catch the Lord in the air. Hints of it in the Old Testament. God took Noah and his family out of judgment. He took Lot and Abraham out of judgment. Now, man, because he needs closure, has come up with illustrations. Okay? Uh, you may have heard this one. It's pretty good. It doesn't get us there. The egg. Right? So people say the Holy Spirit's like the egg. Or the Godhead's like the egg. The shell is the Father. The white is Jesus. And the yoke is the Holy Spirit. It's pretty good. It's one in essence. Here's the problem. If I have the shell, I don't have the yoke. If I have the yoke, I don't have the white. See, Jesus was all of God. The Holy Spirit's all of God. So was the Father. Similar one would be the tea kettle where, you know, you have steam. So you go from water, liquid to steam. And then if you freeze it. But again, you don't have all three. Um... Again, you're not going to figure this out. Theologians call this the incomprehensibility of God. I don't read a lot of John Calvin. He's way too smart for me. But the little I do read of him, he was awesome. You know what he said about this? He said, for who is devoid of intellect as not to understand that God, in so speaking, lisps with us as nurses want with their little children. Such modes of expression, therefore, do not so much express what kind of being God is as accommodate the knowledge of him to our feebleness. In doing so, he must, of course, stoop far below his proper right. So if you had a three-year-old, you, you get down on one knee and you talk baby talk. You ever do that? Because they don't understand. You, you can't explain your mortgage to them, right? In some ways, Calvin said, I didn't say it. That's what God's doing to us. He's putting into terms we understand, but we clearly can't get there. I think the closest we get is Jesus' baptism. Where Jesus is in the water, he's God. The Spirit's falling like a dove. He's not a dove. He's like a dove. Holy Spirit. And then the Father in heaven said, this is my Son whom I'm well pleased. Probably the closest we ever get. So the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit has a work to do. What does that have to do with you and me? What does that have to do with our everyday life and the things that we long for? 
Well, I think, number one, we need to realize that, that if we can ever get aligned with the Holy Spirit, it'll serve us well. Uh, one of the chief things he's doing, we already read it, Jesus said, he'll convict the world of sin. It would be utter foolishness to believe that we could ever go out on that lawn and change a life. It would be utter foolishness for me to believe that anything I have to say today could help anyone or change a life. This is all spirit-driven. And without the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, you can't do anything. And that's why it drives me crazy when people say, well, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be wealthy. Listen, I shared last week. You don't need God to give you a Cadillac. You can drive down the street. There's a dealership here. With leasing today, they'll give everybody in this room a Cadillac if that's what you want. If that's what we needed, we wouldn't be here if Cadillacs were the answer to our prayers. Jesus said, anything you ask in my name, I will give you. You don't have to ask Jesus for a Cadillac. But I'll tell you what, if you pray for the salvation of people that you love, that's a prayer I think God can get behind. This is why evangelism is a God-driven thing. You can't argue people into the kingdom. It's a divine work of regeneration of the spirit. Jesus said, every man that's born again is like the spirit. There has to be a work of the spirit. So when you get on a plane and you sit next to a stranger, take Paul's words. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. This could be that person's day. Some water, some plant, maybe you're getting the increase. Here's the good news. You're not going to see them after another hour and 55 minutes. So if they think you're an idiot, just endure it for an hour and 55 minutes for Jesus, and you'll never see him again. But I've heard a ton of airplane conversion stories, and that's a prayer God will answer. He's the paraclete. He comes alongside. We certainly need him. We need comfort. We need help. I need help. He's the prime mover of the church. And we're going to get into spiritual gifts. So necessary. But first and foremost, I think Christians miss this point. The main work of the Holy Spirit is sanctification. There was no one that was unsaved in the upper room when Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit and he will be upon you, and he will be in you. And he will lead you, and guide you, and comfort you, and help you. This was a promise to believers. Jesus didn't say the Holy Spirit would come upon you, and you're going to freak the world out by all these spiritual gifts. The primary work in the Spirit, in you and me, is sanctification. Last time I checked, he's called the Holy Spirit. Last time I checked, God is holy. Last time I checked Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, holy, holy, holy. By the way, astute people in the room, that's a trinity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the earth is filled with your glory. If sanctification wasn't his work, God would have taken you to heaven like the thief on the cross. You would have been in paradise. Paul said, I labor time and time again that Christ would be formed in you. See, I can't bridge the gap to the life that's promised and the life is without the Holy Spirit. Because I'm a fallen man. And the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I do, I don't want to do. I'm like Paul and I'm like so many that have walked this road. The only difference is every day I'm pleading with God. God, would you use more of me? God, would you take away these deficiencies? Not sinless perfection. A righteous man falls seven times a day. But the Holy Spirit who was involved in regeneration is now involved in our sanctification. And for us to be sanctified, we need power. We need a gale force. I know some of you. We need a gale force. I know me. And the beautiful thing about the Christian life is God's not looking down and say, why'd you do that? Why'd you say this? And Why'd you do that? There's a God who wants to give us filling after filling that we might be filled with his power. 
Here's what rubs me the wrong way. Whenever people teach on the Holy Spirit, they run right to 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Do you realize most of what we know about the gifts of the Spirit come from a church that was way out of order? And we use that for doctrine? It's unbelievable to me. This is a church that was so out of order that the very first chapter, Paul's, Paul writes, some of you say you're of Apollos, some of you are of Peter, some of you are of me, of Paul. They were so, he uses the word, you're carnal, not spiritual, yet they had all the spiritual gifts. I know people that speak in tongues that are sitting on bar stools today. It's not the magic dust. This church was so out of whack, Paul had to insert in chapter 13 an entire chapter on love. Because he said, if you had faith to move mountains, but had not love, you're nothing. And if you had every spiritual gift in the world without love, then you're a clanging symbol. And he had to tell them that love was patient and love was kind and love was all the things we know about that chapter. The Holy Spirit longs to give us the fruit of the Spirit, not only the gifts of the Spirit. Temperance, self-control, kindness, meekness. There's an old saint, Horace Bushnell, who said this about the Holy Spirit. He said, if the stars did not move, they would rot in the sky. The man who rides a bicycle must either go on or go off. A large part of sanctification consists in the formation of holy habits, such as the habit of scripture reading, the habit of prayer, the habit of church going, the habit of efforts to convert and benefit others. See, see we think the Holy Spirit's on a stage and we think the Holy Spirit is goosebumps, and the Holy Spirit is gifts, and the Holy Spirit is gifts, and I'm going to teach on that in the third week. I'm going to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit next week. Very important to me. But why do we think we don't need the Holy Spirit for spiritual disciplines? Jesus said he'll lead you and guide you in the truth. Every time I open my Bible, the beautiful thing is I'm being led by the Spirit into truth. And the last time I checked, what does truth do? It sets us free. Experiences are wonderful. Gabe Lyons was here. He told that wonderful story about this thing in his chest and it wouldn't go away and he was going to have surgery and the elders anointed him with oil and they prayed and the day of his surgery he went in and the doctor said, you're healed. I love that and I believe in healing and I believe in experience but it's the truth that will always set us free. And the heart of God is that we will walk in freedom. My heart aches when I watch what people do in religions. Martin Luther's heart ached when he saw people on their knees climbing steps for indulgences. My heart breaks when I look at people living substandard lives when the Holy Spirit wants to set them free. I love Bushnell's uh, example of a bike. Um, Starting Monday, I started riding my bike and I rode it all six days. Big accomplishment for me. And uh, I knew I was going to use this quote, so I was thinking about it. Yeah, if I stop pedaling the bike, it stops. And it's a great illustration of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that he's the prime mover. He's, he's moving us somewhere. Jesus said, he's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going. Jesus said, everyone born of the Spirit is like this. The question I want to leave you with is, where is the wind of the Spirit blowing in your life? I'm not asking you where it was blowing 10 years ago, five years ago, or at conversion. Where is the Holy Spirit blowing now? It's a question I'm asking at 56. Where's the Holy Spirit blowing? Where's he blowing in the life of this church? Where's he blowing in your life? Where's the Holy Spirit moving? See, see, what we do is we try harder. I'm going to read more, pray more, go to church more. We hop around churches and movements. Maybe that'll help. We fake it till we make it. 
Some people just throw in the towel. Instead of saying, God, give me a fresh filling and launch me out again in the place where I need to be. Patrick Morley said, there is a God we want and there is a God who is. They are not the same God. The turning point of our lives is when we stop seeking the God we want and we start seeking the God who is. A big part of the Holy Spirit is knocking and seeking and asking, laying down our lives. Unless a grain of wheat, Jesus said, goes in the ground and dies, it'll never live. You can't binge on Netflix and then open your Bible and say, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. I mean, you can say it. I don't think anything will happen. And I'm not picking on Netflix binge watchers because I know none of you are. They're all in Texas, right? I could say the same thing about me with sports. I could say the same thing about a hundred things. What I'm trying to say is there is a deep longing and abiding with the person of the Holy Spirit. He can be grieved and quenched and resisted, but he also can fill us and take us to new levels. The Bible says there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. There is a river running through this Bible, and it is the river of the Spirit. And anyone who gets on it and rides that wave, God will do great things. He turned Abraham, an idol worshiper, into the father of many nations. He took Jacob, a scoundrel, and turned him into Israel. He took Peter, who was a fisherman and a vacillator, into the rock. And he longs to take us to a place where there is an experience and an understanding of the Spirit. Today was pretty balanced. We'll get unbalanced next week. I'll talk to you about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about the gifts. We'll talk about the good, the bad, the ugly. And I hope by the time we get to the end, there is a greater awareness in all of us that we can do nothing without him. Again, you can buy all the Cadillacs you want without them. We live in America. But we can't do anything we long to do. The Holy Spirit is here to fill that emptiness, that void. The video said, do you know him? Do you know him?